you know, the, the roundhouse in and of itself was kind of um, secondary in need. It was the turntable itself that was that was the, the, the real need because it turned the locomotives and allowed them to run face first. Sherlock here for Franklin Matters, Franklin Public Radio, anywhere on the internet, WFPR.FM, and in the local Franklin Mass FM radio dial 102.9. Here today, again, in the Franklin studio with Scott Mason. And Scott, we're going to talk about Train Town 2. Yeah, I, I warned you last year that uh, there was going to be a 2. And I think there's a three, but we're not going to three well, we yet. Don't, we don't. No, let's not put the cart before the horse quite yet, Steve. So for the listeners who may have missed last year, just give a little bit of background as to what you did with you, period, and then Train Town 1, and we'll get into Train Town 2. Sure, sure. So, um, you know, this is the, the hobby of model trains has been a lifelong um, process for me. And when I joined the Historical Commission last year, uh, I was asked if I'd be willing to do an exhibit um, centered around the history of the railroad in, in Franklin. And I chose the period 1932 for a lot of reasons. It was the height of the Depression. It was also a very interesting time in terms of rail travel. And Franklin was, was a busy railroad community at the time. So um, it made sense to, to do that. It, it also was a, a bit of a sweet spot in terms of information yes. uh, that was available. So, so that made it easier. Uh, I had a short window in which to build this exhibit. Um, literally, it was it was four months of just a sprint from the from, starting from line. From last year's train town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, it was received very well. It was yeah. on display at the at the historical museum from December to the end of January, and uh, as part of the the plan for this, it was really kind of three and and maybe even a, a fourth exhibit uh, to be um, built on an annual basis. So. I just wrapped up uh, the second version, okay. which is if you were heading, uh, leaving the station and heading to Boston, it would be kind of the next parcel of, of land. Right, so uh, for those who, and we didn't cover it here, but Train Town 1 effectively was just the downtown yeah, Franklin Dean Station. Yep, the, the, the Franklin Dean Station, which wasn't called that then. Not then. Uh, MBTA added that along the way. Yep, the, the, the Franklin Furniture Warehouse, which was across the tracks and up the hill from the station. Uh, the, the coal dealer that was on the other side of the parking lot right. uh, from the station. And the Railroad Express Agency office, which was adjacent to the station itself. Mm -hmm. Which doesn't exist today. Which doesn't exist today. Right. Right? But, uh, but that was the forerunner, really, to UPS and FedEx and, and all the you know, right. overnight, uh, next day package services. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, so two, um, you know, focuses on uh, two main areas uh, that are east of, uh, were east of the station. Uh, one was the Thompson Press Mill, which was a, a maker of printing presses. And uh, across the tracks from, from the mill was uh, a locomotive roundhouse, which was really essential in the day-to-day -day operations of trains in and out of Franklin. Uh, but um, up until the mid-1800s when it was built, uh, you know, it was really kind of a, a, a problematic point that it didn't exist because trains had to run backwards into Boston. And uh, if you know anything about steam locomotives, the last thing you want is a tender full of coal and coal dust blowing in your face as you're, you're, you're riding into Boston, especially mm -hmm. in the cold weather. Right, right. Yeah, and then clearly in today's modern MBTA stuff and even other com uh, 
freight lines that kind of heading both ways there there's much better technology in order to do that the mm -hmm. trains themselves don't have to quote turn around like they had to on the round tables and this this was the franklin round table but round tables can be seen in other train areas in in various parts of the country sure they they were they were very very common back in the day uh there are still some that exist for various reasons uh there are still some railroads that use them uh, there are a lot of scenic railroads that run steam locomotives that mm -hmm. use them out of necessity, uh, but uh, but the one in in, in Franklin uh, was a was a purpose built. Uh, normally, they're built um, because locomotives need to be stored overnight, and they need they need a certain amount of maintenance, refueling. Right. It was a combo garage and turntable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then in in this case, um, you know, the the roundhouse in and of itself was kind of um, secondary. In need it was the turntable itself that was that was the, the the real need because it turned the locomotives and allowed them to run face first mm -hmm. uh, in into Boston right. um, and but and with that in mind the the uh, roundhouse was really um, I've seen a lot of roundhouses in my day I've, I've studied roundhouses I've built many of them as mm -hmm. models and this was by far the most unique roundhouse I'd ever seen <laughs> simply because it was the cheapest possible structure you could build. Roundhouses are, are big structures. Sure. Uh, they have very high ceilings because smoke comes out of the locomotives and it has to be able to, to dissipate and, and vent right. or the, the people in the roundhouse will die. Yep. But there, there evidently was a, a small budget to build this. Mm -hmm. So they used the absolute cheapest materials. Now, most locomotive roundhouses are either wood if they're built on the cheap, right, or brick, or brick, if, yeah. if they're if they're nicely done and larger units, sure. this one was done on the cheap, even cheaper than on the cheap. It was, <laughs> it was tin clad, tin clad, and uh, not only was it was it made out of uh, four by six foot tin panels, but there were very few windows in it. So think about what it must have been like to work in that place in july or january yeah in july you've got no ventilation no ventilation other than through the doors which yep. you hope in the wind blows in the right direction right and then in the winter i mean steel is a great conductor oh oh yeah <laughs> so with all that cold it's not like having a door there oh it, it, it had it. to <laughs> and it was a dirt floor uh so uh, yeah, it, it must have been just one of the worst places that, that the railroad could have assigned you to work in its mm -hmm. day. Uh, but in that same regard, um, you know, not having to work in it or live in it or, or, or deal with it on a one-to-one on -one scale, it was mm -hmm. interesting to model. Sure, I can imagine. And from what I've been reading, I think you, it, one of our local entrepreneurs, I guess is probably the good name for it, helped fund that yeah. in order to bring in... The folks that were working at the mills. Sure. So, so uh, the Hayward Mills were were big employers in town, and 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 they brought in people from all sorts of surrounding towns, and the railroad had a tendency to shut down in the in the winter months because mm -hmm. they couldn't run face first into Boston, and it was just too difficult. So it was a it was a cause of work stoppage, uh, in the Hayward Mill. Uh, you know, the owner had donated the money, but he, you know, he donated. An amount of money, just yeah, not kind of uh, seed money, but yeah, it didn't really materialize and, much more than that. <laughs> and you know, the, the the railroad, you know, back in back in the mid 1800s, the the railroad was owned by the New York and New England Railway. Right. And from about 1850-ish, when the first railroad came into town, 
to the early 1900s when the New Haven, New York, New Haven, and Hartford took over the railroad, it was almost a monthly process where one railroad would go out of business and be bought right. by another. Right. So there's no doubt that the New York and New England Railroad didn't have much money. No, no. And sure as heck, they weren't going to spend any money out of their pocket mm -hmm. to make this a better facility. Sure. Uh, they were going to, I would imagine they came in right to the penny, whatever mm -hmm. the budget was. Yes. Uh, and un unfortunately, it showed. And by the um, 1930s, uh, when this, this, which this diorama depicts, uh, the, the roundhouse had seen far better days. <laughs> I don't think it was ever a glorious place anyway, right. but uh, the doors were in disrepair. Uh, everything was kind of makeshift. Um, you can see there were really only um, two photographs that I've ever seen okay. uh, that, that show it. Uh, but you can tell in those photographs that the, that the place was just a tetanus shot waiting to happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you go down there now, right. Uh, I, I would recommend getting a tetanus shot afterwards. But you can, <laughs> you can kind of see how all this was shoehorned in. It's very overgrown now. Right. There's uh, not a whole lot of room, from what I've understood, because it's at the end of what that where Alpine Place uh, Lane turns, and then it's off, kind of parallel to the tracks, which makes yes. sense because that's exactly what it was servicing. But yeah, it's just you know like wooded, overgrown space at this point. Yeah, you can get in there, and I've walked around in there a couple of times, and I've found um, some artifacts. Yep. Uh, but you would, if you didn't know it was there, you'd never know it was right. there. there. There's yeah. some concrete in there. Um, I found some rotted railroad ties. Um, interestingly enough, um, if you remember last year, I found some coal where the yes. coal dealer yes. was. Yeah. Um, I also found some coal here where the where the roundhouse was, which oh. makes sense. But the difference is that um, coal for home heating was anthracite coal. It was hard yeah, coal. Much harder. Yeah. It burned cleaner. Yeah. Um, the railroad bought the cheapest coal possible, which was bituminous coal, which mm -hmm. was soft coal, right. which made a mess. When you see the pictures of the old steam locomotives with the big plumes of smoke coming sure. out of the smokestack, that's because they were burning really low-grade coal. Yep. And that's what I found down there. Uh, I also found the remnants of uh, when they when you clean out at the end of the day, you clean out the firebox and the mm -hmm. locomotive. Sure. And the, the the byproduct of the coal not burning clean is what's called colloquially a, a clinker. Yeah. And it's it's a it's basically a hard piece of metal. Really. Yeah. yeah. And um, so I found some of that as well, which will be on display with. Mm -hmm. With, with the exhibit itself. Yeah, I was fortunate at one point, fortunate in my mind, unfortunate somebody else may say, but there was a steel mill in East Providence, uh, Rhode Island, where I spent a couple of summers in my younger days. Mm. And one of the tasks in the summertime was they would shut down the furnace and we would have to go in and take all the masonry out and let the masons come in and rebuild it and mm -hmm. yeah so we're going in so this is steel mill they're bringing in you know 30 foot long uh two by sixes of steel heating it and then rolling it through the mill etc so yeah there were pieces of slag mm. <laughs> little yep. you know and there's chemical stuff do it does what it does and that stuff gets hard and yep. yeah even going in after when the mill had been or the furnace had been shut down we could only go in there for a little bit at a time because it was cooking our feet. 
and our souls. Sure. <laughs> We're kind of melting, so we have to go in, put, go out, put our feet in the water, <laughs> and then go back in. <laughs> Aren't you glad that's not what your career ended up being? <laughs> that was one of the key learnings from sure. those points. You yep. know, it was great experience, but yeah, it was something I determined I don't want to probably do that forever. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, and then again, across the tracks is is, is the um, Thompson Press, mm -hmm. uh, which. Um, it was the largest scratch-built project I'd ever done. Um, and interestingly enough, it was about the easiest scratch-built project that I'd ever done. Um, and I have, uh, among others, Joe Landry to, to thank for that. Certainly. Yeah, um, Joe's been a good archivist. Oh, Joe's, Joe's been a, a wonderful resource. He was yeah. last year. He continues to be. He's, he's enthused about this project. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't be more helpful. But, uh, but he's also got a little bit of a sense of humor, too, about this. <laughs> And I, I, I texted him and I, I said, Joe, do you have any pictures of, of Thompson Press? And he said, well, hold on, I'll have to look, I'll get back to you. Well, he sent me um, 12 email files, one right after the other, and each one had about 18 or 19 photos wow. in it. And what Joe had done, so he knew he had these, he was sure. just messing with me a little bit. It doesn't matter where it was. And, and yeah. uh, what he did was before they tore the mill down, he walked around it with his camera. Oh. And he took about 200 photographs of this thing. Wow. So I had, and then it's just a question of extrapolation. Sure. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I know what a standard mill window um, mm -hmm. is dimensionally. So if I base it off of a, of a window, or I know that a, a man door is three feet wide, I can right. base it off of that. Sure, right. To and get I, to that architectural detail, mm -hmm. which listeners can go back to the train one because you actually had uh, design diagrams which you then used the CAD program to help build out the structure for you yeah, for this, that one. Yeah, that was a unique experience because we, we found the builder's uh, prints for the station. Mm -hmm. And uh, another good friend, Sam Maxwell, uh, was able to import it into, right into his CAD program and then trace it. Mm and then scale it down. So it's, it's an exact replica to scale of, of the station. With the mill, you know, I, I may be off by an eighth of an inch here or there. Um, I'm, I'm kidding. You're close. I'm kidding. It's, You're close. It's, it's, it's close. And it, it's certainly, you know, if you, if you hold up a picture of it, um, you look at the, the model, I hope people say, wow, you know, right. it looks like that. Yeah. Uh, there, there was a fantastic picture we don't know who took it, but it was it was back at, at the turn of the the twentieth um, century. Okay, uh, and it, it tells a lot. It was it was back when um, Thompson Press was was the Golding uh, Mill. Yeah, because that's one of the other pieces that not to interrupt, but mm -hmm. I mean, getting to it. But it, we know it most recently it's the Thompson Press, but it was a number of other companies over the time. Yeah, they they made um, paint there at one time. Uh, Golding was also a printing press company. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then they were bought out by, by Thompson. Right. So uh, this picture predated Thompson. Uh, it was taken from the roundhouse side of the tracks. Oh, okay. So that's a different view than we would normally get a yeah. Dean view. Yeah. Sure. yeah. And uh, it, it had to have been taken with an 8x10 view camera because the, the clarity and the detail in this photograph is outstanding. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we're using it for some of our collateral um, information that go, goes along with the exhibit, but you know, literally, it showed me um, a lot of the detail that I would not have been able to to know 
from looking at Joe's pictures because over the evolution of the building, all sorts of different renovations had taken place, right. um, additions had been built. Well, that was one of the key pieces, I think, even in just in my walking along Dean and then for Kate Cena from the other side, it does look like it's kind of, you know, it was, it would be interesting to know what was the original building because mm -hmm. it seems like it was added on here, there, and what, what that life cycle was. In yeah, terms it, of was, its it was added on in several places. It, it started out life as a rectangle. And as, you know, needs grew, sure. uh, you know, they, they and, and being landlocked, they, yep. you know, they built out where they could. Yeah, including going up. <laughs> including, uh, no, it was it was always a four-story. Four story? Always really? a four-story building. And all the additions just kept yeah. to that four-story generally. Yep. Yeah. Um, so now, it, you know, it kind of, it, it almost looks freeform. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I had to be careful because there were parts of it that were built after 1932. Oh, that right. I obviously you didn't want to. No, you couldn't put those in there. Didn't want to include, right. um, and thankfully uh, didn't have to because uh, <laughs> time would have uh, fought, fought me hard. Right. Uh, so uh, anything big like that poses challenges. Sure. Uh, there are 400 and some odd plastic windows and doors in this building. Um, they, my source for the plastic windows thought I was back in the hobby kit manufacturing <laughs> and I told them no it's just for one building. Just for one building. Um, yeah. We spent an inordinate amount of time recreating the sign in the front of the building. Okay. And you know it's amazing how this little half inch high by three inch long sign can just drain you uh, from a resource standpoint but uh, just like the the Franklin Station sign last year it was a hand-painted sign. Yep. Uh, Lord only knows what font it yep. was, yep. you know, probably wasn't any. It may have been a freehand, <laughs> who yeah. knows? Uh, and I, I had a buddy in Albany, New York, uh, recreate it for me. Uh, and then uh, my buddy Sam uh, did a little tinkering with it. And, it, you know, probably 12 hours into it, we had a, we had a sign we, mm -hmm. could, we could put on the side of the building. Okay. So it, it's, uh, you know, there's always challenges like yes. that. Yes, yes. So you certainly had fun doing this. Always, yeah. Yes. Um, it, it's such a great learning experience. Yes. Uh, you know, you think you know certain things, and then you, you find out all this information that yeah. you didn't know, um, origins of the building, mm -hmm. same with the roundhouse. Yeah. Uh, there was a real mystery with the roundhouse because if you walk in that area, you notice in fairly short order as you're heading east yep. that the land on that side of the tracks drops off by about 12 feet or so. Right, because there's an awful lot of wetland beyond that and there's, too. And there's wetland beyond there. Now, of course, um, we don't have the, we didn't have the EPA back in you know, the 1930s to, nope. to worry about what we were doing. No. And they certainly would have um, <laughs> because there was a, there was a track, um, uh, locomotives utilized what was called an ash pit. After they were done with their run, uh, they would they would run the locomotive over this pit, mm -hmm. uh, open up the the bottom of the firebox and drop the ashes down into this pit where some poor soul would shovel it into wheelbarrows or in the back of a and dump truck and, and take it away. Yeah, yeah, out through the valley into wherever. <laughs> yeah, and there's a, a, a valuation map from 1917 that clearly shows this track. Okay, um, but walking down there you look and you say, well, how does this work? Because the land drops off. Well, it turned out that as we were, uh, my buddy Ron and I were, were, were um, researching the area, 
we started coming across these concrete pads oh. down at the 12-foot the sure. deep level. Yeah. And we thought, well, it had to be railroad-related, but it just doesn't make sense. What could it possibly be? And this is before we, we saw the map. And sure enough, on the map, which was very detailed, it shows a stream. Okay. And it shows this ash pit track that ends literally up against the, the stream. stream. Mm. So... Uh, and it turns out that that's where the last set of concrete pads are. Ah, okay. And you can still clearly see the concrete pads in, yeah. the, in the ground. Yeah. Uh, so I'm thinking that, you know, if you know, we were to recreate the EPA back in 1932, they would have been very unhappy at yeah, that process. Yeah. The, the permit process would have been far yeah. more. <laughs> it would have been fraught with disaster. Um, yeah. so, so in terms of the history and the research and then peeling back of the onion uh, in order to do so, was there any other you know, significant surprises for you? Well, not so much a surprise for me because I had, I had known it was there for years, but I think you know, for, for people who ride the train every day sure. into Boston. Which I did for many, many, many years. Yeah. Uh, or, um, you know, maybe, you know, live in Station 117 and are familiar with that area. Yep. The, the um, water tower that was adjacent to the station yep. on, the, on the hill um, fed two water columns. One was directly across the tracks from it. Yep. And the other was a half mile down the tracks um, right in front of the roundhouse. Okay. And they, they ran the pipes underground. It, in and of itself was a very unique situation. Sure. Um, but the, the vertical piece of that water column is still there. Oh, really? And you can see it in the, in the side view photo that we have of, okay. the, of the roundhouse. Yep. You can see the whole thing. But if you're in that area, you can see it. It's you know, leaning you know, to one side a little bit, it's listing, <laughs> but, it, but for whatever reason, they never decided to pull it out of the ground. Oh, yeah. uh, they took the horizontal piece off of it. Yep. So that's a piece of history that, that dates back in, you know, to the 1800s. Sure. Uh, that, that's still alive and kicking. Yeah. Um, and, and that actually brings me back to the, the photograph taking of the, the side view of the mill. Right. Um, the other piece of information it tells us is it shows us all of the sections of water pipe. So at one point before that, there must have been a water tower there. Okay. Um, they were at that point they were piping from the water tower at the station down there, and you can see a huge pile of, of the same flanged, uh, probably cast iron pipe. Okay. Um, that they used. So that was interesting. I don't know what the date of that picture is. Right. Um, yeah. We That's... we we guessed that it was probably around 1900 or so. Right. But we don't know for sure. No. No. No, in those days of photography, they didn't have the fancy date timestamps that we're used to. <laughs> no, and you know some of them, uh, the side view of the roundhouse, uh, whoever took the picture, you know, wrote on it in mm -hmm. crayon or magic marker or something. And we know it's from June of 1933, which is which is wonderful because perfectly within the time period. <clears throat> you know, yeah. I, I I could extrapolate that. You know, 100. Yep. percent The other interesting piece historically was parked. Um, on the far side of the roundhouse, you can see the, the end of it sticking out, was, was a passenger car that the crews used as a, as a bunkhouse. Oh, it was where yes. they laid over. Yep. And um, the, it, it's an older passenger car. It definitely dates back to the 1800s, and it's white. Ah. So, uh, so we think it was a passenger car from the ghost train. Which I was going to say, what, was there a connection to that? Because for those who are at least familiar with some of the train history, 
there was a ghost train that ran from what Boston down to Hartford. Boston to Hartford, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was, you know, one of the more famous New York and New England passenger trains. Right. And its uh, its only local stop was Franklin. It, it emanated out of South Station. It mm -hmm. stopped in Franklin. And then I, I forget exactly where the next stop was, but it wasn't in Massachusetts. Right, right. Uh, and it was, you know, kind of the express mm -hmm. uh, to uh, actually New York City was where it, where it ended. Where it ended, yeah. Uh, but... What leads Joe Landry and I to believe that this was a, a coach from the ghost train is passenger trains weren't otherwise painted white. True. Uh, they were usually green or brown. Right. Uh, so There's Whatever the logo of the line and the emblem and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I did a little research. I found an appropriate period coach and painted it white, and it will be parked next, <laughs> Sticking to, out of. <laughs> next to the roundhouse. Yeah. Good. Yep. Good. Yes. Excellent. Well, I, I can't wait to see it. It'll, and it'll be, while we're recording this, it'll be out hopefully, well, the recording will be out either on, of, or shortly thereafter the opening. But the opening is officially December 2nd? December 2nd, yeah. And then it runs through January again? I think it's going to run through the end of January, yeah. Um, I am, uh, Joe Landry and I are tag teaming again to do the second Sunday Speaker Series at the museum in January. And he's tailoring his discussion to center around uh, the kind of evolution of the Thompson Press Mill okay. and, yep. and what we know about the Roundhouse. And then I'll pick it up from the standpoint of, of modeling both. Taking that info and then saying, this is the replication as best we know. This mm -hmm. is what it looked like yep. then. So yep. we can do a little time travel. <laughs> yeah, it'll, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. Indeed. Well, thank you for sharing the, the insights and stories. And hopefully folks have... Uh, got their interest peaked about what happened in, you know, Franklin in 1930-ish. Uh, Train Town 1 actually is part of this exhibit now, yeah. which includes two. Yeah, they don't physically connect. Right. Uh, because it, we're not actually running trains on them, but right. but they will be uh, appropriately placed as, mm -hmm. as they would have in, in the real world. Uh, and we're, you know, we're also kind of looking forward to the third portion of this, uh, which is is going to be the mill store complex. So you're going to go the other. We're going direction. to go in the opposite direction, and we're trying to figure out if we need to build a bigger uh, museum in order to accommodate <laughs> this. So, <laughs> well, the museum itself, I think, based on one of the photos I saw, was shorter at one point. It appears that it was added on to in the back. Yeah. Yeah, because when I looked at the picture, it was all what, like three windows, three windows. and it's like, wait a minute, there were more. There are more windows. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there is precedent for it. Yes, there is. So we can, we see if we can maybe come out to the side or in some way. Uh, you know, it's uh, eminent domain. That's all I can say. Again, thank you for taking time. Dear listeners, we'll include Train Town 1's audio in case you want to go back and refresh your mind on that one. Or if you never heard it the first time around, it is still available. And certainly, I, not to commit, you, you'll certainly be there December 2nd, and you'll be there frequently during the time period. Yes. So yep. if you do happen to get to the museum, 80 West Central Street mm -hmm. uh, in Franklin, Saturday, I believe, 10 to 1, Sundays, 1 to 4. Correct, yes. Um, stop by. If Scott's there, say hi. And get some additional details, because I'm sure he didn't reveal all. Although we would have liked to, but, you know, being mindful of time and schedules... We've got teasers, so you can go to the museum and have some more fun. And we do this all as a final reminder, because Franklin matters. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. 
This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tin Type Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. By the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.